everybody, and welcome to another one in our long-running series of Financial Wellbeing Podcast, where three of us get together and waffle on about how money can increase your well-being. My waffling name is David Lloyd. I'm an actor, a broadcaster, and a writer, and I'm here to act as mediator while the two people around me talk with more knowledge and purpose than I have about financial matters. And one of those is Chris Budd. Chris, tell us about you. Good morning. So I wrote the Financial Wellbeing book. I'm chair of the Initiative for Financial Wellbeing. But my day job, I help companies to succession uh, through something called an employee ownership trust, having done the same thing myself with Ovation Finance. And it's been really quiet over the summer because um, not many business owners have been thinking about that. But it's got really busy over the last few months. So, yeah, that's actually taking up a lot of my time again, I'm pleased to say. Great. And the other part of our terrific triumvirate is Tom Morris. Tomo, tell us about you. I'm just waiting to hear the, the baby cry and stop. Well, no, you just I mentioned just, it. There's right. dogs barking now, so let me just go and <laughs> Look, this is, this is not supposed to be highly professional, is it? I mean, this is part of the charm, isn't it? Yeah. Right, um, so, um, right. so Tomo... You're such a wordsmith, David. It, it never ceases to amaze it. Triumvirate. It's such a wonderful word. I'm... Yes, far too rubbish for words to come up with. Trio. Um, yes, uh, I am a Chartered Financial Planner and Director at Ovation Finance, who kindly sponsor this podcast. I'm not sure if you can pick up on my microphone. I have a relatively newborn child, so you may hear in the background, I am a father of two now, which is all very exciting. So if you do hear a few whales in the background, don't don't be too alarmed. It's just what newborns do, right? Um <laughs> But yeah, I'm I'm very good. I'm very good. Still recording this during well, what we what we locked down Mark Two, about to go into Tier Three as we're all based in Bristol. Um, but all considering, I feel very blessed to be here today, and I'm really looking forward to this pod. Excellent. So am I. So Chris, uh, we're all looking forward to it. What are we going to be talking about today? We're going to be hearing from a chap called Tony Watts, OBE. And Tony has been for many years uh, a kind of activist, if you like, for older people. So you, David. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do indeed have some comments on that, but I'll save those for later. <laughs> Good idea. Sorry, that was a bit rude. I didn't mean it. Not really. We love you, really. Before we do that, let's look at the first of our regular features, Beige's Behavioural Biases, where an old friend of the podcast, behavioural finance expert Neil Beige, gives us his one-minute introduction to a different behavioural bias that affects how we make decisions about money. What's this week's bias about, Chris? This week, we're hearing from Neil about the endowment effect. The endowment effect. Have you ever gone to sell something that you own only to have the person who is the potential buyer offering you way less than you want? You go to other people and even they offer you less than you think the item is worth. If this sounds remotely like something you've experienced, you've fallen for the endowment effect. In short, the endowment effect is where we overvalue something we own, regardless of its real market value, which of course is objective. And people will tend to believe through this feeling of ownership that what we have, what they have, what they own is better than anybody else's. My car, my house are all better than everybody else's. And it's this biased view of the world that can lead us to making decisions that may not end up being the best decisions that we've ever made. So the next time you're on eBay 
trying to sell that pair of headphones that you've never used, remember that the attachment that you have to them, everyone else will value at zero. In that situation, take a step back and ask yourself, if I didn't own this, what would I be willing to pay for it? Even that one simple step can potentially knock you out of the grasps of the endowment effect. And the sooner you recognize this, the sooner you will feel liberated. So there's a very uh, important relevance here with, with what I was mentioning, in my, if you like, my day job, the fact that I help business owners to exit and sell their businesses, because uh, business owners will very often overvalue their own business. They think it's worth more than what somebody else wants to pay for it. And so the question I always ask a business owner is, how much do you need to sell your business for? And they always give me an amount, it's worth this or that. And I say, yeah, but that's not the question. The question is, what do you need? So the first step for anybody who's thinking of selling their business is to get financial planning. Find out how much you actually need for the business, and then that will hopefully get rid of the, or, or uh, counteract the endowment effect and give you a much more realistic figure that you can then work from. So a good financial well-being link there. Yeah, mm. I think that's a terrific example, and naturally come across this a fair amount as we're in sim. Well, we're in the same field, Chris. We work 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 at Ovation, or you certainly had more of an in- involvement in that since you moved on to your employee ownership side of things. So you definitely see a lot of that. I think another example of where I see it is inherited assets. It's There is almost this extra connection with something because somebody who they loved held on to something. So it must have been really good to have it, even though it is really the wrong thing for them to keep in their lives, whether it be you know, a house they've inherited, which is miles away, but for some reason they want to keep it, rent it, or just leave it dormant because it was their loved ones. Another one is investments. They inherit an investment portfolio that is completely wrong for their needs, but find it very difficult to make any changes to it because of this endowment effect. It's it's very powerful. Yeah, so the ability to uh, be objective, of course, is something that's, that's very difficult. We talk, we've talked many times on these podcasts about knowing thyself, about being aware of who you really are. And certainly my experience of that as a writer of 35 years now is that when I first started writing, every word of every script or whatever that I'd written, as far as I was concerned, was was the best thing that could ever have been written by anybody. Uh, and, and sometimes that may have been true, but often it wasn't. And and, and therefore, the thing that I have learned uh, over, a, over a long career is the ability to step back and be objective and say, yep, that's good. I think that's going to work. But actually, do you know what? I don't think that is as good as it could be, and I could work on it. And that's very difficult when you have an emotional attachment to the work that you're doing. Uh, indeed. I, I think it's worth also just zooming out a little bit here to just remind ourselves why we get Neil to tell us about all of these individual behavioural biases. Because we are hardwired to make bad decisions about money because we have all of these biases built into us from our experiences through life. And so recognising some of these behavioural biases will hopefully and lead to us making better financial decisions. So that's why we keep hearing from Neil and we will get more from him. Very grateful to him uh, and his company BIQ for uh, what they do. In fact, we should probably mention his app because you can do this for free. You can use his app called Beam, B-E-A-M. It's currently on uh, iPhone only, but very soon it will be on all formats. And you can play some games and those games will then reveal your own behavioral biases. And so whether you have strong endowment effect or whether you are very susceptible to anchoring or what have you. Um, Ovation has been using it for quite a few years now. 
Uh, we've been kind of trialing it. It's now available for everybody and you can use it for free. And it's a fascinating, it's good fun to do, but the outcome is absolutely fascinating and will hopefully lead to you making better financial decisions. Excellent. Thanks for that, Chris. Right, let's move on then to the next in our regular features, which is Tight Ass Tomo. And uh, regular listeners of the podcast will know that this feature started, oh, many, many episodes ago, where our producer Tomo took Chris and another colleague, Ian, out to lunch, persuaded them to have a particular chicken dinner, and it turned out that this was one that he had a voucher for that he was able to get very, very cheaply. Thus, the legend Tight Ass Tomo was born, and, of course, the expression, winner, winner, chicken dinner. Fantastic. So before we come on to Tomo's tip, Chris, have you got anything for us today? Just a real quickie, actually. A little name check for a local shop that I'm sure, David, you use called Broccoli Stores on the A370, just outside Backwell, where my son works. Um, and because he works there, we get 20% off. That's my tip. Get your son to go and work at Broccoli Stores, get 20% off lovely food. That's great advice, Chris. So, Tomo, come on, give us your big tip for the day. We're itching to hear it. Well, um, hard one to follow that one. Just on Chris's topic, I do do have some clients who work at a uh, private school. In all, well, not the only reason they work there, but then get something like 50% discount on their charge tuition fees. So, yeah, get out there. I, I once dated a lady who worked for House of Fraser and got myself a 50% discount. So there you go. When Did I you say, stop going out with her shortly afterwards? <laughs> well, as soon as I got the discount, I mean, look, this was a long, long time ago. This is this is school-age Tom wow. um, who couldn't afford a pair of jeans. So, you know. Uh, the legend nice. of Titus Tombo really is going to live on. He actually went out with a girl just so that he could get a discount at House of Fraser. What a Yeah, uh, quite. and the less said about that the better um so my tip it's one that i've mentioned before and it's just to reiterate the importance of this and it was an experience that i had very recently so two good friends of mine uh fellow financial planners well you imagine how riveting the conversations are uh rohan sivajoti and rich ellis we like a whiskey and we thought you know what we've not had a catch-up in a while why don't we jump on a Zoom call, grab a glass of whiskey at the end of the day and just have a chinwag. Yeah, sure, why not? Well, we turn up Rohan. He had this like glass teacup for his whiskey. And I was just like, oh my, what are you doing, man? You're a respectable business owner. What on earth are you doing not drinking out of a proper whiskey glass? He said, well, this is just all I've got. Um, Okay, okay. Well, a couple of days later, he gets a delivery and he sends this picture and Rich had decided I'm going to buy Rohan a really nice set of whiskey glasses. It arrived. Rohan was over the moon. I'm sure it gave Rich a great boost of well-being knowing that he was helping someone. I mean, I'm kicking myself that I wasn't quick enough on the draw. I mean, how tight does that make me look? But the point is, Rich, I'm sure, is getting a huge amount of well-being on spending money on others. The person who receives the gift gets a real boost knowing somebody's thinking of them and the person paying for the gift has a boost to their own well-being so there's my tip spend money on others heck it could be time as well that's a great tip and 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 chatting as i am with two good old friends here i'd just like to point out that my car is a bit decrepit now and i'm not quite sure that it's going to take much longer <laughs> there is limits to this uh this story i'm sure this example well did you hear the george clooney story so george clooney was he uh 
he got paid to do a film, a ridiculous amount of money, like 14 million pounds to do a film, dollars, obviously. And he took it out in cash. And he then got a driver. I think they, they took a, like a, a postal delivery van or something to make it look inconspicuous and took bundles of cash, a million dollar bundles, and went round a load of his friends that had helped him along the way and gave them a million dollars in cash each. And I, obviously he's going to get huge well-being for that. They're going to get, there is a little bit of me that thinks that's a little bit uh, gauche. <laughs> is that the right word? <laughs> Just give him a check. or you know, <laughs> But he had to give it to them in cash. But what a great moment that must have been mm. to walk in and say, there you go, mate. Bam, there's a million dollars in cash. Thanks for all your help. Yeah, that is the stuff of dreams, and I can imagine that obviously it would be great for somebody to just walk in and give you that. But I'm sure that gave him a huge amount. He comes across as being a pretty decent guy anyway, and I'm sure that gave him a huge amount of pleasure to be able to repay those people that he thought had supported him. Um, and clearly, he's working in an industry where you can get paid, you know, ludicrous amounts of money. So why not give a little bit of it back? Well done, George. Right, yeah. let's yeah. move on. Thank you for that, Tomo. Um, Chris, what's the interview about today and who's it with? So today we are going to hear from Tony Watts, OBE. Tony is a director at a place called EngageNet, also a chair of the Southwest Alliance on Aging, director at Retire Easy. He's a copywriter. He ran a newspaper. Well, yeah, I think you call it a newspaper called The Mature Times for many, many years. He's been active in elderly issues for a long, 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 long time. He's also a really nice guy and into his blues. So let's have a listen to my chat with Tony Watts. Tony, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Welcome. Do you want to start off by just, I mean, you and I have known each other for a little, for a little while now. We, well, too, too long, some people might say. <laughs> you or me, yes. And occasionally we bump into each other at blues gigs, so we, you know, yeah. we, we might talk about the blues. But uh, we should probably talk about money and happiness, because that is the point of all of this. Tell us about the work that you've been doing for uh, elder people over the years at uh, has resulted in a certain award. Okay, well, it's, it's all started by accident. I won't give you the long version, which begins with me accidentally running over a cat in Clifton. But it, <laughs> it led on eventually to me, through the person I knocked on the door, I ended up doing a big marketing campaign for the Isle of Wight, and that was aimed at older people. And the only publication, this was back in the mid-'80s, um, and the only publication I could find at that time to, to address older people, connect with them, was a publication that's based in Bristol called Golden Age. And it's based in Victoria Street, an Albert House, curiously. And I ended up, by another series of accidents, being asked to edit it. Now, the publisher said, have you edited a newspaper before? And I lied. And I got the, the gig, basically. So I Always say up, yes and work out the detail later. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> I sort of buzzed over the truth a bit. So I ended up publishing what was then the very first publication for older people. And it's a newspaper, a monthly newspaper. Um, and that went fairly well, and, and that sort of morphed over the years into the first publication I had a um, sort of direct involvement in financially in setting up was a publication called Mature Times, and that was back in the early 90s. Um, and I'd, I'd been editing a group of local papers by then for somebody, and I got together with a bunch of people over in Wales, and we set up um, what was then a fairly adventurous program of getting a paper together which went out nationally and it would be the regional versions. We looked at all the big issues around retirement and we were aiming really at the retired person and we built up about 400,000 circulation at one point. It was, a, it was quite a big beast in those days. So I was editing that and really got very involved with the campaigning side for, for later life and trying to work out how you make later life better 
And there's obviously a very interconnected area. And I think people look at a whole series of single issues and think that's a solution. It's not, you need to look at, you know, um, financial, housing, healthcare, or, or what you do with your life. Um, so we try to focus on all those things that would make for a better retirement. And my involvement with that paper sort of ebbed and flowed over the years. And I, I sold my stake in 2010 or 11 and sort of got pounced upon by a group of people who were representing older people into government. And they said, well, you know, you, with your knowledge, uh, would you actually act as a chair for the Southwest Forum on Aging? And I've been doing that um, ever since. So that acts as, I do that about one, sometimes two days a week. And for quite a few years, we were talking directly to government. We were advising them on new strategies or new bills that were coming forward, uh, giving input from all these sort of feeder groups of older people into how to make legislation, how to make policy more effective. And it wasn't just about spending more money. It was actually starting from the premise that it's a fixed pot of money. How do we make that work more effectively? And I got very involved because of my background in doing the comms. So I ended up leading the comms on all of that. And then we set up something called the Age Action Alliance, and that brought together lots of people from all around the country, uh, working together on projects to try and, again, make life better for older people. But the most important piece of work probably was I acted as a sort of conduit and I delivered the information into the House of Lords on a, a big report, um, which came out in 2012, which was called Ready for Aging question mark and the whole report was looking at the way society and government in particular was gearing itself up to the challenges and the opportunities of later life living and i'll emphasize that because it's not just about challenges people do worry about the downsides of, of an aging society but there are some upsides as well to that so i ended up as i say giving input and i think that had an influence into the way um, housing and social care, uh, the health are now being more coordinated, especially health and social care. So that ended up, unbeknownst to me, obviously somebody noticed somewhere high up, and I was nominated for an OBE back in 2014, which came as a, a bit of a surprise, but it's, it's been a, a very helpful thing because it enables me to go out with a few initials after my name, sometimes you know, speak at conferences, write articles, and give me a bit more clout when I'm trying to do what I'm trying to do. Bit of a door opener. It is a door opener. There are, yeah, it is a door opener. People take it slightly more seriously. It's not, I'm not, it's not everyone's bag. I understand that. And it's been cynically used the honour systems over the years since Lloyd George was around. So it's not just a, it's not, there's some minus sides to it as well. But I think it does allow me to speak with slightly more authority on, on the key issues that matter to me and to, to all the people. Yeah, I think it's fair to say just on that, there's been a big move over the last, I don't know, whatever, decade, couple of decades, to make the honour system, at least a large part of it, to reward people that deserve rewarding. And there's no doubt yeah. that you would be one of them. I don't think we'd have any any, any danger of that. So look, there's a few things in that that were quite interesting. Uh, well, lots that was interesting. But I just wanted to, wanted to ask you to define how you would explain what a better later life is. That's so really quite a big one. So everyone's coming from a different place and has got different ambitions and different life situations. So there's no one size fits all here. I think it's about looking at each individual and working out what works best for them and what can work best for them. But the key point in all this is it's no good waiting until you know you, you start picking up your state pension or your, your ordinary company pension before we start planning retirement um, or later life. Even you have to really start much earlier than that, and that's the. The, 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 uh, one of the things I talk about in, in the book in a minute, but it, it, later life 
for many people starts, you know, I guess, in their 50s. Often their careers either start to plateau out or they start to really get to the very top levels and you've lost a divide point of that. And the, the priorities in life start to change as well. I mean, you aren't necessarily just bringing up the young family. You aren't just trying to strive to get onto the housing ladder. You're, you're looking, hopefully, at the bigger picture. I'm not sure how you feel about it, Chris. Obviously, you're that, that bit younger than me. But you, you start looking at life slightly differently. But you do need to think about how you make the very most of the last 20, 30 years of your life. And it is, I hate you the last, but it is. I mean, you start, I'm 67. I'm starting to really focus now on how I make the most of my next well, 15 years, I guess, if I'm, if I'm lucky. And it's a, it's a matter of working, working together with your finances, your relationships, um, your health, and what you, how you purpose your life. And I think that's something that's really, really significant. An awful lot of people drop out of work into some sort of chasm. You know, you, you see this all the time, particularly, I would, I would say, with, with men who've been in quite senior positions. They've had fairly high status. They've, you know, had authority. Uh, they've had a purpose and getting up every morning. And suddenly, you know, they, they've got nothing to really um, hang their life on apart from, you know, their, their personal relationships. And I think there's an awful lot of work that can be done uh, between employers and employees, but also obviously individuals themselves looking at how they map out those last those last 15, 20, 30 years to, to, to work out what's best for them and, and um, those around them. I think that's yeah, spot on. I mean, we've seen that a lot with Ovation, with, with clients, elderly clients, or not elderly clients, but clients moving into retirement. Um, and we so often you ask somebody, so, you know, what's your plan? And they haven't really thought about it. Yeah. I'd just tell one slightly depressing story, but there was one chap who worked for the same company for 45 years, and he had no plans about what he was going to do in retirement. He had a lovely, lovely defined benefit pension scheme. And then spent most of his time looking after the grandkids. And yeah. uh, he died after six months of his retirement of a heart attack. And Well, this used to happen years ago. I remember back in the golden age years, I mean, people used to sort of get their, their clock in those days. I'm not sure how many people get clocks these days. It's a bit of a, a morbid um, reminder of um, time ticking. But, but it's, it's, uh, <laughs> I never thought of that. That is quite insensitive, actually, isn't it? <laughs> I first thought, look at that on the, on the, on the, on the shelf there. Think <laughs> down the minutes of his grandfather's clock, that is. And... and um, but people used to basically come out of retirement having worked really physically hard as well and thought, oh, I've got my feet up now. Well, the last thing you should be thinking about doing necessarily when you retire is putting your feet up. And I think also there's the concept of a phased retirement now, which wasn't there before. And you, I think you can taper you can taper the world of work into the world, world of, of retirement. As I say, I'm 67 now. I've got the luxury of not having to work every day of the week. And I consciously put my most into every day because I'm either working or I'm in the gym or I'm with my grandchildren or I'm doing my voluntary work, but every day is purposed. Um, and I, I think you do need to have that, you know, thing functioning in your life where you get up for something every day. I mean, every morning I'm up at eight, half past seven, eight o'clock putting a daily newspaper together, which I give a plug to. It's called Later Life Agenda. And it gives you a digest of all the news affecting all the people every day. But yeah, I follow, I follow you on Twitter and see it on Twitter quite often. It's yeah, very good. It's yeah. really important because it, it, it basically brings together all the news stories and features from all around the world as well around later life living. And that's the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning and also keeps me current. And that's the other thing about retirement is that you see some people whose lives are so wrapped up in, in things that are personal to them 
they, they lose their currency. They lose their understanding of the wider world. And that's why I think still working as I do um, is great because, you know, as long as I'm able to, um, because I still stay current in terms of understanding how the world's working, especially the world yeah. of work. Yeah. There's a comment you made earlier about um, making the most of the hours. And I'm, um, I carry with me quite a lot of the time a, a little book by uh, the philosopher Seneca called On the Shortness oh, yeah. of Life. Yeah. Um, on the shortness of life and, the, and the, 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 the line on the front of the page which just does stay in my thoughts quite a lot as I get older is life is long if you know how to use it yeah which is a great line and I, and I find myself you know I, I've, I'm in a position now having sold my business at, um, and I'm doing other things I get to choose most of the time yeah. <laughs> I get to choose what I do um, and I've had a little principle for a little while of um, I'll just say yes to everything and see what happens <laughs> <laughs> and it's great it's actually not about you know the, the, a lot of the time advice is that you know you've got to say no to more things i say say yes to more things um yeah because it's, it's taken me in some very interesting directions I, i'm now have to say no to a few things because it's getting a bit, bit silly yeah. but it's not a bad philosophy actually is it no i i agree and, and this is half full half empty life approach I'd also bring in the concept which comes into the book um and that's having a young brain and an old brain which is something that that I hadn't heard of before, but um, a, a guy called Tim Drake, who's written a very good book called Bunch, Second Bunch of the Cherry. And I commend that to anybody who's thinking about having an encore career or thinking about reinventing themselves after they finish their job, which may not happen at a time of their choosing. That's the other thing. People sometimes find themselves out of the, the role they had voluntarily. But there, there are those of us, when we were younger, we... we we adapt to change because we have to adapt to change, like life changing on a, a daily basis. And some, many people's brains start to age at 18 and they find it harder and harder to adapt to new situations and they won't welcome change. 10% of people carry on through life having a young brain, so they actually welcome change, or seek to adapt, and it, it, it works well for them. And if you look at where Darwin started, it wasn't about the survival of the fittest, it was the survival of those who could adapt to their environment. And we're living in a fast-moving world. I mean, in my years, I've seen so much change. And this is, that's nothing compared to what's going to happen next. And if you're going to be equipped to, be, to deal with life, you have to be equipped to adapt. I mean, and how do you do that, though, Tony? How do you get a young brain, not an old brain? I, I think you have to sort of do what you said, <laughs> and that is say yes to more things. Um, don't shut the door because you're frightened of something happening that you, it might not, you know, be comfortable for you. Move out of your comfort zone on a regular basis. Try things you haven't tried before. And I, um, I'm sat here next to your guitar, by the way. <laughs> pick it up. And also, my life, I've always wanted to play music, and, I've, and because I couldn't have the opportunity as a child, I funneled that into my children. I, I've got two children who make their living out of music. And I was, I was at a conference recently talking, and I was in the, in the evening, and this lady said to me, what well, you talked today about adapting and, and staying young and keeping your, you know, et cetera, et cetera. What are you doing? I said, well, and she said, well, what, what new, new thing have you done lately? And I said, well, I haven't done anything new lately, if I'm really honest about it. Well, she said, I'm 60-something, <laughs> same age as me. I've just taken the clarinet. What wow. are you taking the clarinet? And I said, okay, then. So back in the last year, I started taking clarinet lessons. And it's, I've suddenly discovered this whole new world. And it's mm. just opened up my mind and my life. And I'm feeling much more fulfilled. And it's rewiring my brain, I think, as well. Which, and it's that 
willingness to, to, to actually try something new, eat, go out of your comfort zone, and be prepared to embarrass yourself even. But but don't shut the shut the barriers down because it's not something you've done before. Mm. I, I having played guitar all my life and uh, taken the guitar to dinner parties and what have you. Lots and lots of times over the years, people have said, "God, I wish I could play the guitar. I wish I could play an instrument." Of course, I'd say, "Well, why don't you then?" Yeah. Say, so, "Well, why don't oh, you?" Oh, I, I don't have the time. And I said, "Well, all you need is ten minutes a day. That's it. You just don't watch the telly for ten yeah. minutes. Watch ten minutes yeah. less television, and use that ten minutes at, at just practicing your piece." Yeah. Um, and if you do that every day, you'd be amazed how quickly you progress at an instrument. Um, and nobody's trying to say, you're not going to be a concert pianist or anything. It's just fun. Music is fun. It, so, it yes, is fun. that's a great yeah. story. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not being immodest here, but I, I, it turns out I can actually play reasonably well. And I've, I'm working towards my ambition of playing Chattanooga Choo Choo because it's, <laughs> I really want to play jazz in a band now. I, or, you know, that's what I really I think I'm a couple of years away from that. I'm aiming for that anyway. Fantastic. So, look, you've mentioned the, your, your book. Tell us what uh, your book's all about. Okay, well, this, this project started a while ago. I'm sure you've heard of the company called Punter Southall, Punter Southall yep. Fire. Um, their CEO, a very, very interesting man called Steve Butler, he got in contact because he was writing a book around intergenerational workforces. And I gave some input into that. And that book's come out, and I would commend that to anybody, any employer out there, um, who is struggling with the fact that their mix of employees is not quite as, uh, as cohesive as it might be. Because nowadays you have to, it's, older people are staying in work longer, younger people churn through the system quicker. How do you get a better, sort of more cohesive mix inside a business of, of the generations? How do you make the most of those different talents? So that book came out end of last year. That's done very well. And, and that's called Manage the Gap. I commend it highly. But we've, from that, we've, we said, well, there's one element in the book, which is the midlife review, uh, which we mentioned, well, he, men- he mentioned rather, but, but it's, um, it's something I've thought very passionate about, and I asked him to mention it in the book, and he's done that. But, but he said, well, let's do something more detailed around this. And the midlife review is something that a, a guy called um, Stephen McNair started off. It's a good, at least 10, like 10 years ago now. And I got involved with it, I work um, as a, as a cons- you know, working to government, basically. So we were asked to input on this. And the idea is that all employees, once they reach a certain age, and it's no defined age, but certainly 50, 50 onwards, should be having a, a sensible conversation with their employer to work out where they go from here. Um, <laughs> and, and where they, okay, because what you have at the moment, got an aging society, aging demographic within the workforce, um, how do you make the most of those talents? How do you keep retraining them for the changes that are ahead? How, how do you um, make the most of the talents when perhaps they need reskilling at any one point? Because all the skills that we used 20 years ago aren't necessarily the ones we use now and extrapolate onward. But also, it's more importantly, companies like Aviva have since got involved in a very big way. And they got involved when they thought it would be nice to do. Um, having this midlife review, they ran a project saying what your employees, what old employees um, want from the later years. And they suddenly looked at their, their business plan going forward and realized there was this big chunk of their, uh, of, of their uh, workers would be disappearing soon. Um, many of them got comfortable DB pensions. They, they could leave at time of their choosing. And if they all left because they could leave, 
they would suddenly have this skills gap, which would be, quite frankly, sort of very um, serious for the business. So they've implemented, they're starting to implement this on a regular basis, inviting people in on a, a no commitment basis that you haven't got to do it. But they look at their work ambitions and their work restrictions and, and also look things around their caring responsibilities. You know, would they prefer to work flexibly? Would they prefer to actually work two or three days a week or four days a week because they have caring responsibilities coming up? Would they like to change role into the future? Because sometimes people get locked into a job and they don't want to say anything uh, because they appear to be unambitious or not be part of the team. But it's not what they enjoy doing anymore or they're finding it too onerous. The starting starting point of all of this is the financial audit. Mm. And you do this on a regular basis, Chris, with your guys. And you look at individuals and say, well, look, here you are. Your X years. When do you want to retire? How much do you want to retire on? And what would be comfortable? How do you reach that point? And so doing a financial um, audit on each individual would tell them if they could afford to retire, when they could afford to retire, when they could afford to start phasing their work um, commitments down and put in a financial plan that fitted around their life ambitions and their uh, personal ambitions. And alongside that, there's a, there's a health order as well. And people should go to either a health doctor or yeah. an NHS and check out your health. One of the five planks of financial well-being is a clear path to achieve identifiable objectives. Yep. And do you know what? I think I've probably been a little bit guilty I don't know if any of our listeners have been as well, of thinking a clear path to identifiable objectives tends to be in the wealth creation phase in the early part of life. But what you're basically saying is in mid-later life, as you're thinking about maybe within 10 years of retirement and, or moving into your next phase of life, you still need a clear path to identifiable objectives, don't you? That's what yeah, you're talking about. And, and the, where, the interesting thing where this has moved on from is that whereas in, in the beginning it seems like a one-off hit you know, you sat down with your employer and you did it and there, that was your mapped out for the next 10, 15 years. No, this should be a regular review mm. because your personal circumstances are constantly changing. The company's circumstances are constantly changing. And it does need to have an honest conversation. And sometimes maybe you have a, a buffer between a broker who actually conducts these conversations. And that's a, another possibility. But, but health is one of them. Because people often disregard their health in their middle years. It's, you know, you're, you're working the, all the hours, you're running around looking after the kids. And so you have this gap. I see this in the, I'm in the gym quite a lot now because I, you know, I've got time to do it. And you've got younger people in there and you've got people my age and, and beyond. Very few people are in there in those middle years and they really should be focusing on making sure you've got your body sorted out for the next 10, 20, 30 years as well. Yeah. And it's mental well-being as well. And yeah. it's obviously a mental health issue, something you understand, I, I know that. It's, but your objectives, I think, look at your objectives again. What's your health objective? What's your, you know, your financial objective? What's your personal relationship objective? All these things need to be mapped out, I think. And actually, if, if you'll forgive me for, for going slightly on a tangent, and the, stuff, the work that I do on employee ownership, one of the things that we talk about there that is owners, uh, business owners, small business owners should do with their key employees is have a, uh, a combined career and financial plan. Yeah. Where you sit down together and you say, right, what do you want your future to look like? Let's see how, what the business needs from you. Put the two together, see what you can get paid, see what you can afford and come up with a combined career and financial plan. 
and I've always thought of that as like a, you know, an owner with his senior management team, that, that kind of thing. But the idea of doing that in a big corporate, I mean, that's fantastic. That's wonderful that, that uh, the likes of Aviva are doing this. So if you had success in getting other companies to, to look at well, it, it's, um, it's Obviously, this is very much a pilot stage. The business in the community, the organization that, that sort of um, piloted this and have been promoting it, and they, they've got um, obviously a lot of influence out there. What, what's happened since then is that the government itself thinks it's a, it's a great idea because they want people to be working for longer and being economically active for longer. Um, and they also want people to be less dependent in terms of health. So they think this is a great idea, but they, they're leaving it to the system to, to work its way out. I know other people are looking at it. Uh, uh, Legal in General, for instance, did a pilot on it. And, and people like Mercer have also been looking at it as well. But it hasn't really, really taken off yet. I think it sounds like you're doing a large part of this work. You aren't doing it in the same, quite the same way. Well, I'm, I'm now thinking that people at business in the community, uh, you know, they can be part of our financial well-being, the, the initiative of financial well-being. Yeah. We, we, can, we can spread the word on this. I think this is a lovely idea. And this is, you know, obviously your book is part of this as well, which is going to be out. It's called Midlands Review Wealth, Working Well-Being. Um, there we go. Uh, it's, it's myself and Steve Butler have co-authors of that. But like, what we do in there is map out why employers should look at this quite seriously, why employees should look at it quite seriously, and then look at the mechanisms of making it happen. And we picked on the ways that different ways people tried it out so far. And the conclusion we came to is again, there's no one size fits all. If you're a small company, it's not going to be the same as Aviva looking at this issue because you've got it's different structures and, and different um, and different barriers sometimes to um, to, to, to making this work. Yeah. Um, but it, it, I think there's huge advantages to any employer to, to look more holistically at their workforce and think, well, well okay, I'm I'm chugging along quite nicely now, but where will I be in five years' time? Where will my workforce be? What what will they constitute? What ages will they be? Yeah, and I think yeah. It's, one thing it's just should, good business planning, Tony, isn't yeah, it? It's essential business planning. It's essential business plan. I'm not sure whether it's a part of every business plan. You look at your, your markets, you look at your, your products and your services, you aren't necessarily looking at the workforce that are going to service that mm. and how you need to train those people up to, to perform those new roles and where they're going to come from. As, as I mentioned before, younger people aren't necessarily going to be as easy to, to recruit as, as perhaps you might think because these guys don't hang around these days. That one, two years is often the most some people will but stay in the job. They're looking for the next career move and you need to either incentivize them, as you're talking about, or be prepared to um, provide lots more incentives uh, for older people to stay in, in the workforce. What you've just said there, uh, Tony, fits right into a bit of a bee in my bonnet, if I may, just for a second. The idea of, of uh, the younger generation moving job every couple of years, I've got a really strong belief that the reason for that isn't because they're, I don't know, somehow flightier than our generation. I think it's because there's a disconnect between what owners are giving their employees and what the younger employees want. Because we're Thatcher's children. We grew up in, in Thatcher years and we see success in financial terms. And a lot of the bosses and owners and, and, the, and the senior management of corporates, they are all also Thatcher's children and see success in financial terms. Yeah. But millennials and the younger generation, they don't tend to. They're far more interested in purpose. All the climate change stuff going on, they don't even know if there's going to be you know, a, a life on the planet in 30, 40 years' time. So they're much more interested in purpose. So I just think that they're moving around so often, not because they, they want career moves necessarily, but because they're trying to find a job that will align with what they want out of life. That, for me, is the big change that employers could yeah. learn from. 
Well, I think back to the book I mentioned earlier on, the intergenerational workforce, that explores that in detail. It looks at the motivations for each generation. You can't be too bored, obviously, but you, millennials don't think the same way as we, we do. And they're looking for work for somebody they can really believe in. Whereas years ago, you'd happily work for a tobacco company or an oil company. Whereas these guys will look askance at working for someone who, who's whose corporate values may not align with their own. Mm -hmm. I think also looking at the the workplace, I mean, one of the things I write about is is poverty, business poverty, and the places where people work are having to change because people don't want to work in the same sort of workplaces. They want to work in more collaborative situations. They want to sit at desks on their own where there's no connection between them and and the outside world. They want to work from home more often so they can have a better work-life balance. And employers need to understand that's what will drive that generation of people and keep retain them. Whereas it may be slightly different for people of, you know, the people in the 40s and 50s and, and possibly 60s who, who will look at work in a, in a quite different sort of way. Neither is wrong or right. You simply need to look at these motivations. So employee benefits, employee motivation needs to be geared towards the individual rather than having a one-size-fits-all. Yeah. Well, there's a perfect summary of, of what financial well-being and financial planning is all about. <laughs> it's not yeah. a one-size-fits-all. Know thyself. Work out what works for you. Tony, that's absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And uh, we will put lots of information about your book and, and other resources on our show notes. Thanks very much for your yeah. time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Nice to chat to you. We must meet up sometime. Well, fascinating interview that was. Um, uh, I found Tony a really interesting character. And I have to say, Chris, I'm just going to give you a little plug. I thought that was a really good interview as well. I thought you you teased some really interesting stuff out of him in a very empathetic way. Now, I can obviously identify, I think, with a lot of what Tony says. I'm just a couple of years younger than him. Uh, you know, and I, I'm at a similar stage in my life when I am talking about, as he identified, the challenges and opportunities of later life living. And, and, and the one thing that he said that really resonated to me, you know, it's time now to think about how you make the most of the last 15, 20 years of your life. And putting it bluntly, you know, that's probably where I'm at now in my life. I still think of myself as being, I think everybody has a locked in age. Mine's 28, and I still think I'm <laughs> But I'm not. I'm 65. And statistically, I actually looked this up the other day, you know, and typed in my age, my demographics and all of that to find out when I was likely to die. And it's probably 83. So I've got 18 years to go. So life for me now is less about an endless series of possibilities and and ambitions and, and goals that I want to achieve. It's how can I make the most of my life while I've still got my health, uh, where I've got you know re- a relatively uh, good amount of money in which to enjoy myself, you know a, a, a partner who I'm you know very happy with. You know how can I get through the rest of my life, hopefully avoiding getting ill, and uh, and 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 enjoy myself as much as I could. I loved his story about um about the fact that you know people used to get retirement clocks, and he always found that as a a morbid reminder of uh, time ticking away, and and that's certainly something that I've never been uh, interested in. He, he talked as well about the, the last thing you should be thinking about on retirement is putting your feet up. And certainly that's always been my attitude to life anyway. You know, although I am on the cusp now, I'm still very much working, writing for doctors, and writing another novel, but I'm doing it less now because I have to. I'm doing it now because I want to. And in between those times when I'm sitting down and working, 
Uh, I'm looking at how I can actually get out there and enjoy myself. I'm also trying to keep myself fit. I'm doing more gardening. I go, I run 4K three times a week. So uh, as he says, we should be looking, people of our age, to welcome change and seek to adapt. And that's always been my philosophy in life anyway. Uh, and it was great to hear somebody else voicing that in such a clear way. Mm. I think his um, his take on retirement doesn't mean retirement anymore. You know, it, it, it's you don't just stop work. There's a, a, an Aegon survey that I heard recently where something like eighty five percent of people continue to do some form of work in retirement. Well, then they're not retired, are they? You know, because they're still working. They're just doing a different type of work, maybe something they want to do, or maybe it's charity or voluntary. So taking time with your financial planner to say, not just my retirement age is a certain age, but what are you actually going to do? What will life look like? I heard a really good tip on this recently, and I'm really annoyed. I can't remember the financial planner who said it, so my apologies to him if he's listening. But it was uh, what he says to his clients is, at the moment, you have lots of social relationships through your work, social contact. When you retire, a lot of that will stop. So how are you going to replace it? I think that's a really good tip to ask. Are you sure uh, it wasn't uh, me? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Tom Morris the other day. <laughs> is that I what you they're, they're spying. Well, I don't, I, I, this is exactly the conversation that, that, I, that I have with, with people. If I think about that transition, I just will mention those that I find from my experience, those that are... Uh, at your stage of life, David, or it, it's so tangible for them. I feel as though they are so focused on wanting to get this right, which does make the coaching conversations uh, that much richer and, and we can get a lot deeper because of that from my personal experience. But yeah, there are there are some key things. So we That purpose, we talked about in the last episode, that thing that gets us up out of bed is often linked to our the thing that pays you know, pays the bills, our careers. You know, if, you, if you've if you got a career full of purpose, then great. But just because you might switch off the income-producing career doesn't necessarily mean that career stops. A career could mean an all manner of things. Uh, I think the traditional mindset of what work is is changing in how we fill our time. And then the social interactions is just so important. How are we getting those? And I would argue that people are feeling that importance right now during 2020 where a lot of those interactions are being turned off for them there's a story uh, and i may well have told this on a previous podcast in which case i apologize but i think it's absolutely right for this moment i remember when i was a young man i was about 19 or 20 i was hitchhiking which we used to do a lot more in those days i was hitchhiking from up north where my parents lived down to london and i got given a lift by a guy uh, and his name was bill and he was 80 and he was from the West Midlands and uh, we were driving down. He was a really interesting, engaging guy. And he worked for, at the age of 80, he was a, a volunteer for Age Concern. I remember him saying to me, he said, he said, oh, well, the thing is, he said, uh, I, I, I love to work with the old people because I like to look after the old people. This is an 80-year-old man telling me this story. He said, and I remember, he said, when I retired, what the last thing I wanted to do was sit on a wall in me slippers, watching the world go by. I wanted to get out there and make a difference. And that's always stuck with me. And that's always been my ambition for my retirement, which is, as Chris says, is only going to be semi-retirement anyway. The last thing I want to do is sit on a wall and watch the world go by. And I thought Tony summed that up very well. He said, there are so many people 
often men, but women as well, whose whole life is channeled into their work. And then all of a sudden they find that's not there anymore. They're spending time at home with a partner that they perhaps don't know very well because they've always been out at work and may not actually like that much either. And therefore, I think it's very important to give yourself a good sense of purpose to see you into that um, later part of your life. Right, okay. So that's a very interesting chat we've had there. Uh, thanks as ever to uh, Chris and to Tom for their contributions. And I hope you'll join us again next time we do another one of our financial wellbeing podcasts. If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. You can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at FinWellBeing. Chris is Ovation Chris and David is at Dave underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think. Thank you.